Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare, the, spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present world of the form of this world is passing away. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray now that as we prepare to walk through this uh, extremely applicable passage for believers today living in the United States, Father, we pray that you would clear our minds of all of the distractions of this world, all of the, all of the things and tasks that uh, await us at home after church, the, uh, the assignments of things that need to be done tomorrow morning at work, the ways in which we have failed throughout the past week, Lord, we pray that you would help us to put all of these things aside and out of our minds, and so that at this moment and in this place, by your Holy Spirit, we would focus solely upon you and upon your glory and upon your word. Pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would cause this passage to land on us with all of the weight with which the Holy Spirit intended for it. Through it all, Lord, we pray that you would make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to reprioritize our lives in a way that brings you the greatest amount of glory. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you could uh, choose one word to describe the culture in which we are currently living, what would that one word be? uh, I gave a lot of thought to that question. I'm sure there's probably a lot of different words that maybe come to your mind. But if I was going to pick one word to describe the culture in which we are currently living, it would be the word lunacy. We live in a time where it seems that Everything is viewed with suspicion. Nothing can be believed other than the Bible. You're reading the Bible, you can trust that. But regardless of what your source is, where you're getting your source of information, your source of news, or whatever the case may be, whether it be a liberal outlet or a conservative outlet, 
It's all to be viewed with suspicion because everybody has an agenda. Of course, we know human nature is that humans have always had an agenda, right? I mean, that's not new. That's not shocking. Politicians, news reporters have always had an agenda. I think the only difference is that years ago, they at least tried to pretend that they didn't. Now they're just very open about the fact that they have an agenda. And everybody is taking sides. Since 2013, gay marriage is a constitutionally protected right. Even though if you were to ask every U.S. Supreme Court justice whether or not the founding fathers ever intended or envisioned for homosexual marriage to be constitutionally protected, if they're honest, they would say no. But that doesn't matter. It's a living document, and we have found it somewhere in that document. They unwittingly granted that right. And, of course, with the Supreme Court ruling in 2013, they've opened Pandora's box. Gender is now considered a word that is subjective in a matter of opinion. Kind of like the word beautiful or beauty. Define beauty. And, of course, the answer is going to be, well, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. I mean, it can, beauty can be different things to different people. It's a, it's a subjective term. What is beautiful to one may not be beautiful to another. Well, they've now taken these gender words of man and woman, and they've placed them in the subjective category. To the extent that these are words that people are arguing simply cannot be defined or explained in any meaningful sense. Lunacy. Recently, I watched uh, significant portions of a documentary that was produced about five months ago by a guy named Matt Walsh. Some of you may have seen it. It's an hour and a half long. I'd encourage you to watch it. And I'd encourage you to watch it with your, your older teens who are getting ready to go out into the world on their own and go to college. Matt Walsh in this documentary goes around and he interviews some of the most intelligent minds the United States has to offer. Professors at major universities, doctors, medical doctors, scientists, and yes, even the average person on the street. And he's asking them one simple question. He sits down in front of them and says, what is a woman? And these brilliant minds stare at him with open eyes and shock as to what kind of a question is that. Nobody can answer that question. Literally, that is what some of them said. There's no way to define that. You can't explain it. There are many versions of woman out there, and there just simply is no definition. What a ridiculous question to ask. He then goes and visits the Maasai tribe in Kenya. He visits the Maasai tribe in Kenya, and he is standing with a group of villagers, Keep in mind, he's in a third world country. He's having a conversation with a group of simpletons who are not educated to the degree that we are in the United States. And he asks them the same question, what is a woman? 
And through a translator, their response was very similar, interestingly enough. Wide eyes and laughter, but for a different reason. What do you mean, what is a woman? How do you not know what a woman is? What kind of a question is that? What are they teaching you in America? Literally, they are laughing at him. And the response is, we'll make this simple for you. Woman, man. (laughs) It's not that complicated. Lunacy. We are living in a time where those who once worked with parents now view parents as the enemy. Just last week, a Washington State school teacher publicly wrote that school districts are not doing enough to keep parents in the dark regarding their children's privacy. Parents do not have the right to know what their children are doing. She went on to say that school districts have an obligation to protect children from their Christo-fascist parents. Occupations that were once considered respectable jobs are now viewed with disdain. Across the United States, school districts everywhere are struggling to fill their classrooms with qualified teachers because for the last 10 years, Fewer and fewer college students are majoring in education, and fewer and fewer of them want to become school teachers. Because they look out at the school system, even unbelievers are looking at the school system and saying, that's a mess, and I don't want any part of that. Nationwide, police departments are struggling to staff their departments with police officers. Because we now live in a culture where they are viewed as the enemy. And nobody wants to work for the enemy. All four branches of the military over the last five years have struggled to meet their recruiting goals because it is now viewed as evil to be patriotic for your nation and to want to sacrifice for this country. We live in a time and a culture where nearly, nearly every Ill behavior is a medical diagnosis and in need of a prescription. No such thing as bad behavior, just bad diagnoses. When all of this is taken together, we have to ask ourselves, how do we as Christians live in this world? How do we live in this world? How are we supposed to interact with this world? How are we supposed to deal with this kind of lunacy in which we now find ourselves? In short, here's Paul's answer that he's going to give us. Do not be overly tied to this world. Don't be overly attached to this world since the things of this world are temporal and fleeting. But the things of God are eternal. Cling to Christ and to the things of God. And so Paul continues in verse 25, and he says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one by whom, as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. 
Now that Paul begins with that phrase, now concerning the betrothed, seems to indicate that he might be responding to a question that was asked to him in a previous letter. He uses that kind of language a few more times in this book. You see it in chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, you see it again in chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, and he'll begin to talk about spiritual gifts. So it may be that when Paul does this, he's saying, okay, now let me address some concerns that you have regarding this particular topic. It could be there are some who argue that this is just a literary device that Paul is using to indicate to the readers that he's now changing topics. I've dealt with that topic. Now I'm going to change topics slightly and deal with something else. Either way, Paul is indicating that we're looking at a different topic here. And it is different, although he is going to discuss marriage and singleness again. That is not his main point. It is a different topic that we will look at as we continue through. I also want to just quickly point out that if you're using the New American Standard Bible or the the New King James or the NIV, yours is going to read now concerning the virgins. And, And that's accurate, the Greek word is a pathanos, and it does mean just virgin. The ESV is translating it as betrothed because it does seem contextually through the rest of the chapter that Paul is talking about those who are engaged to be married. But he uses the Greek word for virgin, but that would make sense in the mind of Paul because those who are engaged to be married should be virgins. They should be. And so to Paul, those engaged to be married and those who are virgins are one in the same, but he is talking about virgins who more than likely are betrothed to someone else, and that's going to be true through the rest of this chapter. And so he starts by making an honest uh, comment about what he is about to tell them. He says, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I have no command from the Lord. We've seen that kind of language before in verse 12. Paul says, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, right? So he's letting the reader know this is not a commandment that comes directly from Christ. What I'm about to tell you is not going to be found in any of the, the gospels. Nonetheless, Paul says, I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. One who by the Lord's mercy can be trusted. Paul finds gentle ways of reminding his reader that I have been appointed as an apostle of Christ. I speak authoritatively on behalf of Christ. So what I say needs to be followed, must be followed. He uses similar language, for example, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, which is his way of saying, I've been given this ministry, this apostolic ministry, by the mercy of God. He says that at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, called by the will of God. In other words, he right up front reminds the readers 
God put me into this position. I am an apostle by God's will, an apostle of Christ Jesus. So what I say, what I write, according to Paul, is the very words of God. And so that's what he's doing in our text when he says, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy can and should be trusted. And so now Paul is going to give his readers three points. Three points in answer to the question, how do we as Christians live in this world? This world of lunacy and danger and increasing persecutions against Christians. Here's his first point from verses 26 and 27. In light of the current world affairs, strive to remain as you are. That's what Paul is going to say. In light of the current world affairs, strive to remain as you are. Notice verses 26 and 27. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek to have a wife. Paul essentially is going to remind them of what he's already been stating beginning in verse 6. Remember back in verse 6, he says, Now I wish, verse 6 and 7, I wish that all were as myself, as I myself am, but each one has his own gift. I wish everybody was single, Paul says. He'll go on to say in verse 8 and 9 to the unmarried and the widows, it is good for them to remain single if you can, but if you can't exercise self-control, Paul says it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Don't, don't tempt yourself by trying to stay single if you simply cannot do it. But then he'll say to the married, verse 10, to the wife I say she should not separate from her husband, verse 11, and to the husband he should not divorce his wife. And then, beginning in verse 12, those who are married to an unbeliever, stay married. If your unbelieving spouse wants to stay married, don't try to end that relationship. And then, verses 17 down to verse 24, Paul will essentially say, stay in whatever situation God has called you. Don't try to change who you are. Don't try to change whatever situation you're in, unless there's a good biblical reason to do so or a really strong personal reason, like you have to marry or you're going to burn with passion, Paul says, stay the way you are when God called you. But here, what we see in this passage is that Paul gives the reason. He says, in view of the present distress, everyone should remain as they are. You see, Paul lived in a world where Christians were persecuted. Initially, the persecution against Christians in the Roman Empire in the first century really didn't come from the Roman government. It actually came from Jews who despised Christians. And Christians who would end up in a Roman prison, it was usually because the Romans were arresting them and throwing them in prison to keep them away from the Jews. They were just trying to maintain peace. They don't really care about justice. There's a riot starting... Jews are beating up on Christians. We'll just arrest the Christians and throw them in prison. We'll keep them safe that way. That's how Paul ends up in prison, if you're familiar with your book of Acts. 
right? He's being beaten by the Jews in Jerusalem. And so the Romans come and they rescue him and they throw him in prison. He ends up spending the next few years in a Roman prison. However, persecution against Christians does become increasingly worse and worse until the conversion of Constantine in the year 314 A.D. And then Christianity is declared the official religion of the Roman Empire. But just before then, at its worst, was under Emperor, the Roman Emperor Decius, who reigned from 249 to 251, who issued an edict. Decius it issued an official Roman edict throughout the entire Roman Empire that all Roman citizens were required to offer a sacrifice to the emperor as a god or suffer imprisonment or worse. And then when they did that, it had to be verified by an official Roman uh, government official who would give you a certificate that had your name on it and he would sign it. And that was the proof that you went through with the sacrifice to the Roman emperor. Of course, it was after that, the latter half of the third century, that many Christians were thrown into the Colosseum, fed to lions, because they simply refused to offer the sacrifice to the Roman emperor. Now, we are not there yet. Fortunately, in the United States, we are not yet at a place where we are being arrested and imprisoned and tortured and put to death simply because of our faith. Nonetheless, Paul says in verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Again, Paul is repeating what he's already stated beginning in verses 6 and following. That is, in light of the current distress that exists in the world, and this is Paul talking about the first century Roman Empire, in light of the current distress that exists in the world, Paul says, if you are married, fine, stay married, but if you're not married, Paul says, stay single. If you can stay single, stay that way, Paul says. The second point that Paul will make then is that he wants to qualify what he's saying. And his second point from the beginning in verse 28 is this. If you cannot remain single, there is no sin in marrying. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. So he's quick to remind them that, look, from verse 9, if you burn with passion, if you just absolutely have to get married, Paul says, get married. Singleness is not required. He wants to be clear about that. He has been clear. He'll continue to be clear. Singleness is not required. Marriage is not a sin. But again, Paul is also wanting to be clear that singleness is preferred. It's not something that any parent or grandparent wants to hear, right? Paul says singleness is preferred. Now, Paul does not have a low view of marriage. He absolutely doesn't. Go read Ephesians chapter 5. He has a very lofty view of marriage. He understands the theology of marriage, the significance of marriage. God instituted marriage. 
It has value. He does not have a low view of marriage. Nonetheless, his preference for singleness is really purely practical. It's purely practical. He'll talk about that in verse 32 and following, and we'll see it in this text as we walk through it as well. But Paul, in summary, is simply saying this, the world out there is a mess. It's a mess. We can probably relate to that sentiment. The world out there is a mess, and if you remain single, Paul says, it will be better for you. It will be easier for you if you stay single. Now, don't misunderstand. There's no hidden message here coming from Hexen. I love my wife and I love my kids. They bring me an enormous amount of joy. Nevertheless, if you have ever read about Christians who live in a persecuted nation, if you've ever spoken to Christians who live in a persecuted nation, they will tell you that that is true. Because it is far easier for a single Christian to go underground and hide from the government than it is for an entire family to go underground and hide from the government. It is far easier for a single Christian to figure out how to survive on his own or on her own and to find food for themselves and to keep them safe and to keep them alive than it is for a mother or a father with children to figure out how to keep their entire family alive and to keep them fed and to keep them protected and to keep them safe. In other words, Paul, writing in the middle of the first century, saw the writing on the wall. He saw where this was going. He saw the persecution that was coming to Christians living in the Roman Empire. And so he simply says, look, if you're not married, stay that way. You know, we should be able to see the writing on the wall as well. Because I think things may not be quite as bad as they were in the Roman Empire in the United States, but we are certainly reaching that point. Paul's third point, which I've already touched on, is marriage will make living the Christian life more difficult. His third point that he wants the readers to get is marriage will make living the Christian life more difficult. Look at verse 28, or the middle of verse 28. He says, so he just said, look, if you, if you get married, that's fine. You're not sinning. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you from that. So Paul is just being practical. He's saying, look, this is not a commandment. There's no sin in getting married, and I'm not commanding you to stay single. He's just saying, I just want to spare you from the heartache that lies ahead for you if you get married. Because Paul himself had experienced up close and personal what persecution looked like, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 and following. Just listen to this. I'll read it to you. Paul writes this. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. 
I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul, these are the things that Paul dealt with often. Now imagine had Paul been married with children. There would have been that additional struggle of who's caring for my family. How are they faring? Are they eating? Or even worse, Paul was so hated by the Jews because he was a Pharisee. They knew who he was. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He was well known. He was like the Jews most wanted. Even worse, they may have targeted his family because of what he was doing for Christianity. And so from experience, Paul is speaking. Stay single, he says. Because with a family, this can be extremely difficult. Whenever I read these sort of texts, I'm often reminded of the first recorded martyr of a woman in church history. Her name was Perpetua, and she was martyred on March 7th of A.D. 203. And uh, we know about her martyrdom because she kept a diary while she was in a prison cell. And when they came to take her to the lions in the Colosseum, she handed that diary to a fellow cellmate who then recorded her death, and how she died. But she was arrested because the Roman emperor, Septimius Severus, forbade conversion to Christianity and Judaism. He forbade it. In his mind, Christians and Jews, they're all part of the same religion. They're just different sects, and they're all causing trouble in the Roman Empire. So no Roman citizen was allowed to convert to Judaism or Christianity. Well, Perpetua and her four companions were arrested in violation of that edict. They converted to Christianity, and they were bold about their faith. They were brought to the Roman cells that lie underneath the floor of the Roman Colosseum. And Perpetua was married. She had seven children. The youngest was an infant. And she records in her diary on how several occasions her husband came to visit with her, holding her infant child and pleading with her because he wasn't a believer, pleading with her, just tell them what they want to hear. Think of me, your husband. Think of your children. Think of your infant child. How will they live without a mother? If you're a mother, imagine being in that situation. If you're a husband who loves your wife, imagine being in that situation. However, Perpetua refused to deny the Savior who bought her. And so, consequently, she was taken out into the Roman Colosseum, and she was torn 
to pieces by wild lions. That event, as horrific as it was, at least emotionally would have been made a little easier on her if she were single. Or we can think of Richard Wormbrand, who lived from 1909 to 2001 and spent many years in a Romanian prison during the height of the Cold War, when Romania was a satellite nation of the former Soviet Union. He was a believer, and he was open about his faith. And the official policy of Romania, just as the rest of the Soviet Union, was atheism. There is no God. So he was arrested on numerous occasions. He was beaten, tortured. And not just he himself, but also his wife, Sabina Wormbrand, spent also a great number of years in Romanian prison cells because of her faith. She tells the story of one of the most heart-wrenching events in that during her time of imprisonment, And she talks about her son, Michael, who was 10 years old and on one occasion came to visit her in her cell in Romania, and she was able to talk to him through the bars. This was before the days of plexiglass and telephone, and she's able to visit with her 10-year-old son, and tears are streaming down his cheeks. He can't understand why he can't see his, his mother or his father, and he's shocked by her appearance. She is emaciated. She looks like a skeleton because she's been malnourished and not well-fed or taken care of, and she has bruises and body, and on various parts of her body. And as she's talking to her son, Michael, who is 10, she begins to tell him to stay strong in your faith. Don't deny Christ. Remain faithful to him no matter what. And just then, the Romanian guards grab her, and they violently begin to drag her down the concrete hallway, and Michael begins crying as he watches his the body of his emaciated mother being drugged down the hall, and she is still screaming, stay faithful to Christ. And so Paul says to the church in Corinth, I want to spare you that. And so he offers them then his reason And he offers them some instructions as to, well, how do we live in this world then? How should we exist and interact with this world? Notice verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. You see, Paul believed firmly that he was living in the last days. In fact, he says that in chapter 10, verse 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. If Paul believed he was living in the last days 2,000 years ago, then where are we living? We are living in the last of the last days. Surely it cannot be much longer. The kind of persecution that Paul experienced in Rome, the kind of persecution that Perpetua experienced in the latter half of the Roman Empire, the kind of persecution that Richard Wormbrand experienced in Romania at the height of the Cold War, 
may not be happening here in the United States, but understand, my friends, we have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are living that at this moment. Christians who live in places like China, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, North Korea, India, and many other places. And this is coming to America. We are not far from that day. Just a little more than a year ago, I remember watching a news story in shock at uh, watching uh, video footage that was taken, obviously, with people's uh, cell phones. But it was a little over a year ago, a group of Christians had gathered in a city park in Portland, Oregon, just to pray. There was no intentions of preaching. This wasn't open-air evangelism. They were just going to get together in the park, gather in a circle, and pray. And when bystanders saw them praying, they recognized them as Christians, and they were violently attacked by a mob. To make matters worse, on live film, there are police officers who are standing nearby who did nothing to stop the attack. It lasted only a few minutes, two or three minutes, but that's enough time to leave the victims, many of them bloodied and beaten, some of them unconscious, and then the attackers fled. And once they fled, the police officers then stepped in to render first aid and to dial 911. And when they were later asked by reporters, why didn't they do anything to stop the attack? They said they were afraid it would make the situation worse and lead to a citywide riot. Now, I don't say that to uh, portray all police officers in a negative light, okay? This is not true across the board. We are talking about one city in Oregon, But nonetheless, what was shocking to me is that you still cannot deny the fact that there were government officials, police officers, who simply stood and watched as Christians were being violently attacked simply for being Christian. That is the kind of nation we now live in. Just last week on February 6th, a student at a Catholic high school, mind you, in Canada was suspended and then later arrested for saying in school that he believed there are only two genders. They said, you can't say that. That's hate speech. You're, you're inciting violence when you say that. And so he was suspended and later was arrested by the local police. This was a Catholic high school, by the way. This is the world in which we live. And it's only going to get worse. It's not going to get any better. So what are we to do then? How are we to live in this world? Well, notice what Paul says, middle of verse 29 to the end. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they are not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they have no goods, as though they own no property. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with the world. Why? Here's his reason. Again, for the present form of this world is passing away. The things of this world are fleeting. They're temporal But what does he mean by this? 
Let those who have wives live as though they had none. What does that mean? Well, Paul is not contradicting what he's already said in verses 1 through 5 about married couples. He's not saying if you're married, look, the time is so short, just live like you're not married. Ignore your spouse, right? And just pretend like you don't have a spouse and just live your life. That's not what he's saying. He's also not contradicting what he says in uh, Romans, for example, 12, 15. There, Paul will say this, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. So when Paul says those who mourn as though they are not mourning and those who rejoice as though they are not rejoicing, he's not saying, look, you need to be calloused. And when you see people mourning, you know, don't mourn with them. Just Don't worry about it. Don't rejoice with people who are rejoicing. That is not what Paul is saying. What is he saying? He's saying, hold on to the things of this world loosely. Hold on to them loosely. And those who buy as though they had no goods. Yes, we have to buy the things of this world. We need to live. We, live, we, we need clothing and food and shelter. But Paul says, only buy as much as you need. Those who buy as though they have no possessions. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with the world. In other words, yes, we have to deal with and interact with the unbelieving world. Right? We have jobs at secular companies. We have to buy from secular companies. But Paul is saying, only deal with the world as much as you need to. In other words, hold on to the things of this world, the things of this life, meaning your spouse, your children, your possessions, the way in which you deal with the world. Hold on to the experiences of this life, the joys, the sorrows, the ups and the downs of life, of living in a fallen world, hold on to these things loosely. Because at any moment, all of these things can be taken from you in the blink of an eye. Not just through death and poverty, but when persecution comes, these things can be taken from you like that by the government. Your spouse can be taken from you. Your children can be taken from you. Your job, your possessions, the things that you own, your bank account, and your retirement plan can be taken from you. Just ask the Jews who survived World War II in Germany. They lost everything. Hold on to the things of this world, understanding that everything in this world and every experience that we have in this world is temporal. It's fleeting. Cling to Christ. Cling to the things of God because those are the only things that are eternal and will last forever. I'll end with a quote from uh, Jim Elliott who died on January 8th, 1956. As a missionary who was attempting to evangelize the violent Huarani people of Ecuador. And uh, he was killed by them, speared to death, him and his companions. And he kept a journal. 
And later, after his death, his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, was reading through his journal, and she came across this one sentence which really summarized the whole of his life, but should also summarize the whole of every Christian's life. And Jim Elliot wrote this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. That is what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. And this is a passage that is so incredibly applicable to the church in the United States today because we are living in desperate times. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, Lord, we pray that you would enable us to put into practice what your Apostle Paul is telling us, that we would hang on to the things of this world loosely our spouse, our family, our children, our possessions. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would enable us to remain as we are in light of the writing on the wall that we see approaching. But we know that each is given their own gift. We know that you have a plan for everyone's life. But Father... I pray for myself and for all who are here that you would help us to to not cling tightly to the things of this world, to not overly desire the things of this world, but that we would cling to Christ and that we would live for your glory and for your praise. In Christ's name, amen.